Have you ever been under the microscope? Have you ever been under the microscope? I think maybe you already know what I'm talking about. Have you ever been in a position where you were being assessed and you knew it? I remember a class that I took. I was a music major in college, and I did a lot of pipe organ uh, performance. And one of the classes that I took was choral conducting. And it was one of my favorite classes, and we learned all about the techniques of choral conducting, and we did a lot of conducting. And I still remember for our final, I think it was our final project in the class, the, the, the conductor, the teacher of the class, um, brought a choir together. And he gave each of us a piece, and we had to conduct the choir like we were running a rehearsal, and he was grading us. And I'll never forget, I'm standing there, I've got this piece that I've been working on and learning how to you know, conduct and what I wanted to do for the breaks and how I wanted to crescendo here and decrescendo here and slow down here and pick up here. And I'm conducting, and I'll never forget that conductor just sitting there, the professor just sitting there, he's just watching me. And then I would do something, I would cut it off, and he'd look down in his notebook and he'd start writing. And I'm trying to focus, right, on conducting and listening and who, did the altos, did they miss that note? Did the tenors get that note? And here he is, making, jotting down little notes. I felt I was under the microscope. And maybe it wasn't a conducting class for you, but probably at some point in your life, you know that you're being watched by someone who's judging and assessing and analyzing what you're doing. Now imagine what it was like for Jesus. Thank you, Ben for Jesus to be under the microscope. Now, we're here in Mark chapter 7. We've gotten through six chapters of Mark together. We're almost halfway through this book, and it's been such a profitable time for me. I hope it is for you as well. And when we picked up, remember, from Mark chapter 6, Jesus has, has brought 5,000. He has fed 5,000 men from five loaves and two little small fish. And so probably it could have been as many as 15,000 or more people that he fed miraculously from this very small amount. We remember that Jesus then sends his disciples into a boat and he comes after them in the middle of this wavy, stormy evening, walking to them on the water. His disciples see it. We end Mark chapter 6 with Jesus healing people all throughout this region around the Sea of Galilee, again, in the northern part of Israel, away from the big city, the big religious center, Jerusalem. And by now he's famous. Now, what happens inevitably when someone gets famous? They go under the microscope. People have said before, you've heard famous athletes say, it's horrible. I can't go out and get a bite to eat anywhere. Everyone wants my autograph. Everyone wants a picture with me. Everyone's staring at me. Everyone's watching me. And you can imagine what it would be then to be Jesus. Now, why would, why would Jesus in particular be under the microscope? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now, why would the scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem? Because Jesus was a religious teacher. And so now the religious teachers are hearing about this guy from the northern part of Israel. And he's doing all these miracles. And he's saying all these things. He's teaching with this incredible authority. And he's challenging 
a lot of what we've been saying. And so you can just imagine the, the temple priests sending the Pharisees and scribes, hey, go up and see that Jesus guy. Go up and study what he's doing. Go see if he's the real deal if, or if he's a deceiver. Now, they already were going up with hardened hearts, no doubt. We've already seen Jesus' conf confrontations, conflicts, with Pharisees in the past, and no doubt those had reached Jerusalem. They already were coming up, not just to put him under the microscope, but to try to trip him up, to try to identify where he was going wrong. And notice what they found. Look with me at verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft or often, don't eat. They eat not. Why not? Because they are holding the tradition of the elders. So stop there for just a moment. What did they latch on to when Jesus was under the microscope to say, we've got you. You're not the real deal. You're not the teacher from God. You're a phony. Now, Jesus could have said to them, hey, did you see the miracles that I've done? How do you explain those? Well, we already know how some of them explain that, well, you're just from the devil. But they were looking for any reason to discredit him, and what they ultimately settled on was a word with a capital T, tradition. You're not doing it the way we've always done it, Jesus. In fact, go through, just scan your eyes down these verses and see how often this comes up. Verse 3 says, holding the tradition of the elders. Verse 5 says, according to the tradition of the elders. We see again in the idea of verse 9, full well ye reject the commandment of God, Jesus says, that ye may keep your own tradition. Verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. These Pharisees came down from Jerusalem, saw that Jesus wasn't following their traditions, and they said, aha, we have you. But did they? No. You're going to see Jesus do three things in his response to them. And really, this response goes through verse number 23 of chapter 7. And the next three Sunday mornings, this Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, and the Sunday morning after, we're going to, Lord willing, spend time in these 23 verses. The first thing that Jesus does is he really indicts them. Notice what he says in verse 6. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. He says, Isaiah got it right. Hundreds of years before, he got it right. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips. They speak in an honorable way toward me, but their heart is far from me. Then he goes down into verse 9, and he indicts their tradition itself, their entire way of looking at these questions. He says, full well, you reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And then in verse 14, he calls the people together, and he says, hearken unto me, listen up, every one of you. And he's going to correct them on this idea of what actually defiles someone. What, why did, was their tradition so wrong on this matter of washing of hands? And we're going to take some time this week to understand what this whole issue about ceremonial hand washing and tradition was all about. Next week, God willing, we're going to turn the spotlight on ourselves, on our own traditions. Do you know this church and every church is full of traditions? 
Traditions, you're going to find, traditions aren't bad in and of themselves. Why do I wear a coat and tie when I come to church? Do you know there's, there's, there's no scripture that I would look to and says, thou shalt wear a coat and tie when you come to preach on a Sunday morning at church? This is a tradition. It's a tradition that I stand up here in front of a pulpit, a wooden pulpit. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us we must do that. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us we must sing hymns using a pipe organ. I'm glad we do, to be clear. I like it. But why, why do we do certain things like this? Is there, any, is there any commandment in the Bible that we meet every single Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. For our, for, our, for our evening service? No. But what is it? It's a, a tradition. Does that make it wrong? No. Does that make it right? No. So next week, I want to turn the microscope on ourselves. How do we think about tradition? How do we think about doing just, we've always done it like that. Jesus is going to give us some examples of that. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from today, we'll look at this matter of ceremonial defilement and look at what Jesus says, a very powerful thing. He says, it's not about what comes into you that makes you dirty. It's about what comes out of you. And that is a wonderful and powerful thing. So Lord willing, over the next three weeks, we'll just work our way through these 23 verses. But this morning, what I want to focus on is what I'm going to call this morning the tradition trap. The tradition trap. Because what we're going to see here this morning is that the Pharisees thought they had Jesus in a trap. They thought they had him because he wasn't following the precious, holy, honorable tradition of the fathers, of the elders, of the people who had always taught it this way. But friends, what they didn't realize is that they were the ones in a trap. They didn't realize that they were the ones who were caught up in the trap, not Jesus. And this morning, I want to ask whether we might be getting caught up in our own tradition trap, a way in which we are ultimately going to miss the message of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, because we're tied up in our own tradition. Three things that we're going to look at. First of all, we're going to look at what these Pharisees held on to. Secondly, we're going to look at what they didn't hold on to. And thirdly and tragically, we're going to see what held them. What they held, what they didn't hold, and what held them? First of all, what were they holding on to? Now, this idea of hand washing, we've got to clear one thing up. You could read this in verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. And you could have the idea that Jesus' disciples were just coming with grubby, disgusting, muddy, dirty hands and just throwing food, shoveling food into their face. And the Pharisees were like, whoa, that's not sanitary. What are you guys doing? That wasn't what was going on. Okay. By the way, you should wash your hands before you eat. That's a good idea. You've heard of bacteria and germs and viruses. Washing hands is a good thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And the reason we can see that is even in verse 2. When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands, they weren't talking about dirt. They weren't talking about germs, even though they didn't know about germs in any, in any significant way at that time. They were talking about moral cleanness about spiritual defilement. They were talking about dirty hands, not the kinds of hands that you wash off with water. They were saying your spiritual hands 
are dirty. Why? Because you didn't wash them with water. Now, let's try to break this down a little bit. And thankfully this morning, we have Mark to help us. Now, remember, we're going to have to stretch all the way back to the very early days in our study of this book. Who is Mark primarily writing this gospel to? Now, let's start, first of all, with the gospel of Matthew. Who was Matthew primarily writing his gospel to? Jews or Gentiles? Jews. That's why he presents Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, over and over and over and over again. Now, okay, can you see where this is going now? I think you've got it now. Is Mark predominantly written to Jews or to Gentiles? Gentiles. And that's why he has to have such a background explanation of what was going on here. Even in these first several verses, if he had been talking to Jews, he would have just said like Matthew did. They just washed their hands and they saw that they weren't washing their hands and that was it. But these aren't Jews. These are Gentiles. And it would have seemed strange to them. They didn't understand the Jewish concept of hand washing like you and I maybe don't. And so Mark is going to tell us. Notice verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands, often don't eat, holding the tradition of the elders. Now notice this, verse 4. And when they came from the, come from the market, the marketplace where they bought food, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Again, we're not talking about, about washing your dishes. We're talking about ceremonial, spiritual, moral cleansing that they were trying to accomplish. Now, what this involved was a ritual washing before they eat. Now, the idea here of this washing is actually as the, the picture in the Greek is your fist. It's like a fist. You say, what does that mean? Now, some people think that what they would do is they would go like this. They would take water and they would wash their, go like this to clean their hand, and then they would do it with the other hand. Some people wonder whether it was just from the wrists down or even, in fact, all the way potentially up to the elbow, they would wash. And again, this was not to get the dirt off. It was a ceremonial cleanliness so that they could not be defiled before God. When they ate, it was intended to be spiritual and moral. Now, this may seem so strange to us because you all have been trained in the Bible. You've been taught the Bible and you say, water can't wash sins away. Water can't wash moral uncleanness away. And you're right. But these people really believed that this act of ritual washing, very public, open, ritual washing before they ate, after they came home from the marketplace, the scrubbing of their bowls and their pots was something that was actually removing moral defilement. And you could just imagine, I came from the market. I might have rubbed shoulders with someone who was unclean. Now I might be unclean. I might have accidentally brushed up or touched my hand against someone who had touched a leper or had touched a dead body. And therefore, that might have transitory, that transitory property, it might have gotten onto me, and now I'm defiled. So before I eat, I must ritually wash my hands to make sure that my cleansing is restored. Now, where did this come from? You'll see this with traditions, friends, especially religious traditions. Sometimes traditions come from a place where there's a grain of truth or even more than a grain. 
Can anyone think back to your Old Testament and think about a time where there was ritual washing of hands? Think that back to your Old Testament. Anyone? What about the priests? Listen to this. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver, a sea, a big pot of brass, and his foot also of brass, so what it was sitting on, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar where the sacrifices were. And thou shalt put water there, and for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations." So again, think about this picture. God is saying to his priests of the Old Testament, I want you to be clean. Now, of course, we know this today that that was looking ahead to Jesus. That that was pointing ahead to a high priest who would never need to wash to get rid of his, phys- his moral impurities because he was the sinless, perfect son of God. He was holy already. But that was pointing ahead as a picture. You need a holy and set apart high priest. And so as this picture, I'm going to give you this washing. And the Pharisees look at this, can't you just imagine, and say, well, if it's good for the priests... If it made them holy to go and offer sacrifices, well, then it must make us holy too. It must set apart our eating. Well, that just is logical. That just makes sense. If God told the priest to do it, well, surely that can apply to us too. And so over the generations, after years and decades, all these traditions just continued to accrete on and on. If it's good enough for the priest, it's good enough for us. And so they continued to do it. There was a commentator who quotes a prayer that they apparently made. Blessed be thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to walk. Wash the hands. Do you know what a big deal this was? There was a rabbi that, that, that history records was in, it was in captivity. He was imprisoned, very shut apart. And he had a very small amount of water to be provided for him to drink. And do you know what he did? He only had a little bit. He used it to wash his hands instead of drink. And do you know he was celebrated? This idea was, look at this example. Apparently, the rabbis would say it would be better to walk for four miles to find water than to eat with unwashed, ritually unwashed hands. It'd be better to go on a four-mile walk looking for water than to, than, than to eat with unwashed hands. Now, again, you say, that's crazy. But again, this was the tradition. In fact, there was even one that is, that is quoted as saying, if, you, if he who lives in the land of Israel and eats with washed hands is assured of eternal life. Just imagine that. Imagine the idea that this truly is what is making me right before God. This is cleansing away my moral impurity by ritually washing my hands before I eat. 
Now, that's where they found fault with Jesus. They say, Jesus, your, your disciples aren't doing that. You know something about Jesus? Jesus was the most compassionate man who ever lived. He was the one who would see a leper and go up and touch him when no one else did. He would see a woman that was set apart by her, her, her ceremonial uncleanness, and he'd be the one that would go toward her. He had an incredible love and kindness for everyone he passed. And do you know what he had no time for? False religion. No time. He tore the masks off people. And you know, friends, frankly, in our day, sometimes we have this picture of this gentle and kind Jesus, and we don't realize that there's a Jesus who wants to make sure people aren't going to hell. And what false religion does is it sends people to hell. And that's why God's people across every age, while they have, we trust, been compassionate and kind and gentle in every respect, in every way, have not hesitated to say, that is a lie from the pit of hell, because that's where it's sending people. And here, these people who were so tied up in their own religion, so tied up in their own tradition, what they held was what had passed down from their fathers about this washing of hands. And what did they not hold? That's our second point. Look at this with me, will you? Look what Jesus says. They ask him in verse 5, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus answers and says to them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Look at verse 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me. It's empty. This tradition is worthless. Teaching for doctrines... The commandments of men. Notice the first thing that they did. They elevated tradition to the place of scripture. Now what is Jesus saying? You are teaching as doctrines, as necessary rules, simply what man is commanding. Now I want you to notice what Jesus is saying by implication. He's saying this, friends. There's something that God commanded now, I just want to let that sink in today. You will not be able to be a faithful and thriving and growing disciple of Jesus Christ unless you take seriously what God has told us in his word. Do you know what one of the great dividing lines in our day today is whether you will take this as the inspired, God-breathed book that commands your life or whether you will say, it's optional I'll take what I like and I'll reject what I don't. I'll try to apply what I think makes sense and what doesn't seem to make as much sense. I'll just kind of gloss over. The foundational part of a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who tries to understand everything that this book, that this book tells us and seeks to apply it in their life. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciple indeed. Are you... Are you seeking to study and understand what this book has to say as the commands of God, something that God breathed out for us to follow in? That's what it looks like to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. But what Jesus says is you have taken the commands not of God, but of men, like washing your hands. And you've elevated them to the place of Scripture. Notice what also he says. And then in verse 8, he says, for laying aside the commandment of God. Do you know what that word is? It's the word that is also translated in the Bible as divorce or putting away. 
It's like you have divorced the word of God. You have divorced the commandments of God. Why? So that you will hold the tradition of men. Now let's think about this for a minute. Notice then verse 9. He said unto them, full well, you reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Now let's think about this for a minute. Were the Pharisees expressly rejecting the commandment of God when they elevated the tradition of hand washing and said everyone needs to wash hands? Everyone needs to morally, ceremonially wash their hands before they eat? In other words, let me ask you this. Was there a commandment of God in the Old Testament that you couldn't wash your hands before you ate? Did God say, thou shalt not ceremonially wash your hands before you eat? Was there any command like that? No. So they weren't rejecting the, the, the commandment of God because they were saying the opposite. Don't do what God said. Or do what God didn't say. Oh no, they would never, they, they would never have done that. So how did they reject the commandment of God? By elevating their own tradition. Jesus is going to nail them with an example. You ready? Keep on going here in verse number 10. He said, For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. And whoso curses father or mother, let him die the death. Let him be put to death. Now he's bringing out a positive command in Scripture. He's saying, Honor your father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. The idea of honor is to have a weight, to be heavy. We are to view our parents in a biblical sense. God, this is God's desire for humanity as having great weight, as great, a kind of great heaviness that, that affects the way we listen to them and even for all of our life affects the way we relate to them. We are to honor them. We are to respect them. We are to give them reverence. That is just a part of the nature, the fabric of life that God has put in, in place. And so... Notice then the other command. Jesus points back to the law of Moses and says, if you curse your father and mother, you should be put to death. That was the Old Testament law. Now listen to what he says. Verse 11. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more, you permit him no more, to do aught or anything else for his father or his mother. Okay, step back. You say, what on earth is going on? What on earth is going on here? Okay. One of the things that Jesus is saying is one of the ways that we honor our father and mother is by supporting them in their old age, if the need calls for it. That's a, this just this, the, the, the obvious implication of what he's saying here. He's talking about a son or a daughter who's called upon to honor his father or mother by helping take care of them when they're old. And this was an expectation in that day. And today we, we put them in a nursing home somewhere. No, I, we, today there are times that our parents don't need to be taken care of. But Jesus is saying if your parent needs to be taken care of when they're old age and you're a son or you're a daughter, you do it. You take care of them. It's honoring them. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. What is he saying? The Pharisees had a way around this command of God, of, of giving it any effect. Do you know what their way around it was? It's this word, korban. Now, that's a word that literally means, like it's translated here, a gift. You say, what happened? Here's what the Pharisees would do. 
dear mom, dear dad's getting old, they need support. And the Pharisees would say, I don't really want to do it, frankly. That's a lot. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of my resources. I got a better idea. Do you know what they would do? They would say, mom and dad, I'm sorry. Everything that I own is set apart as a gift to God. It's Korban. It's a gift. It's his. And mom and dad, I'm really sorry. But that's, my resources are for God and for his worship in the temple. And I got nothing else for you. I'm sorry. Blame God. It's for him. I, I kid you not. Now, there was some disagreement, I saw, or at least some, a little bit of tension. Some people said if a Pharisee made that vow, they actually had to follow through with it and give their money. But others said, actually, that a, a Pharisee could just say, it is God's because they'd say, it's going to go to the temple after I die. And I'm just the steward. I'm just a caretaker. I can spend it on myself. I can live high on the hog. I can do whatever I want. But it's God's after I die, and I'm just the steward. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Now, you see what's going on here. You see the racket that's going on here. What Jesus is saying is, you have tradition, like Korban, a gift, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't take care of you anymore because my money is God's. And it's under the guise, it's under the mask of being spiritual. Can you imagine a mom or dad saying, Son, I'm destitute. Can't you imagine that Pharisee just kind of straightening up his clothes and straightening down his fancy, uh, uh, his fancy borders and tassels at the edge of his garment and says, so you're saying I shouldn't give my money to, to God, huh, Mom? Is that what you're saying? You're saying the temple's not worth anything to you, huh? I mean, can you imagine the guilt trip they put on people? I'm sorry, I'm all gods. I guess you're not all gods. Oh, well, I am. Again, you see this, and, and I'll just say this. We'll get into this more next week. But friends, do you know religious tradition does that? Religious tradition allows us to cloak our own selfishness in the guise of I'm so spiritual. I'm sorry I can't help you today. I have to go to church this morning. I'm sorry I can't take care of my family and my needs of my family. I'm too involved in ministry right now. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I can't love you like Christ loved the church because I've got my devotions to do right now. Now, friends, am I saying anything against devotions? Am I think, saying anything against ministry? Am I saying anything about, about, about being faithful in church together? No, but listen to what Jesus said. He says, making the word of God of none effect. What does God's word want to do in our life? It wants to change us. What does God want us to do? God wants you to be more loving today than you were yesterday. And, and these Pharisees, instead of recognizing that what God wanted out of them was a sincere love of mom and dad that out of a heart of honor and humility and submission and love would lay their lives down for their parents. They said, sorry, mom and dad. I've got my own selfishness to cloak, but I'm going to do it under the guise of being really spiritual, really godly, really holy and set apart. And Jesus says, I've got no time for that kind of religion.
I've got no time for those who will make my commands of zero effect because they're too holy and they're too spiritual and they're too godly. He was indicting them and he's saying, this is who you are, Pharisees. I know, I see exactly through you. Do you see what he called them? Look with me in verse six. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you, what? Do you know what a hypocrite is? Let's be very clear about this. Some people walk out of church and they say, I'm never going back to that church because they're a bunch of hypocrites. And do you know what they're saying is they don't live up to their own standards. Let me just say one thing very clearly, friends. None of us live up to our own standards. None of us live up to the Bible standard. Being a hypocrite is not, try, is not seeking sincerely to follow God and falling short. That's not what a hypocrite is. Do you know what a hypocrite is? In this word, the idea is of one who is a stage actor. One who is putting on a mask. One who is saying one thing and putting up a standard for others to follow and then intentionally and seriously and selfishly following something else. And this is exactly what nailed these Pharisees. They were hypocrites. They were actors. They were putting on a mask to cover their own selfishness, to cover their own lustfulness, to cover their own carnality. And they had the gall to stand up before God and say, I'm right. Look at how holy I am. Look at how righteous I am. When they reflected none of the character of God who they were purporting to serve. It was empty. And that's why Jesus could look at them and say, in vain you worship me. Your worship of me is entirely empty. I reject it. I hate it. You think you're holy and you're not. You're a hypocrite. You see, not only what they held was their tradition, what they did not hold was the real effect of the word of God that went right out the window in their selfishness. But thirdly, what we need to see is what held them what held these Pharisees? What held them was their own selfishness. What held them was their own blindness. You see, here's what is the great tragedy. Listen to what Jesus says. In verse 6, he quotes Isaiah to say, This people honors me with their lips. They speak the right words, but their heart is far from me. Do you know, friends, the great tragedy for these Pharisees is that they ultimately were completely deceived. They looked at all their religious tradition and ritual and ceremony. They knew all the right words. They knew how to say the right things. They knew how to make the right sacrifices. And they thought, as I'm washing my hands before I eat, I'm actually right with God right now. And what Jesus exposed them is to say, you're deceived, your heart is far from me. Friends, what's tragic today is that there could be someone who has come in here this morning to open our hymnal and sing songs like, May Jesus Christ be praised. And they're singing and saying all the right words, and inwardly their heart is a mile away from God. A mile away. And the simple point is this don't be deceived, friends. Don't be deceived that by coming up and opening the hymnal and saying and singing the right words, you're close to God. 
Do not be deceived by coming and sitting in the church service today and hearing the word of God preached that that means your heart is in the right place. Don't be deceived that if if this, this, this week, every single morning you get up and read the Bible and you check your, 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 your box off the chart that I must be right with God today. No, friend. The question is where your heart is. The question is, What's your, the reality of your relationship with God is like? You see, w- w- one thing that has been really significant for my wife and I is to establish a date night every week. We call it Tabitha Tuesday. And just Tuesday night, we're going to have a date night together. And it's, I, I would recommend it to any of you to establish a weekly, if you're married, establish a weekly date night where you're really going to pursue a kind of connection and growth in your relationship, whatever that may be. That's not the God speaking, that's just some practical advice. But I want you to imagine that one Tabitha Tuesday I showed up and I knew all the right words to say and I, I knew everything to do, but my heart was a million miles away from Tabitha and she knew it. The rest of that week, I'd been proving to her that my heart was far from her. I want you to imagine someone who shows up for their date night with their wife, and all the while, they're carrying on an affair with someone down the street or at work. Is that wife going to say, well, you showed up for our date night. We must be all good. Of course not. The date night's good. Don't get me wrong. Date night's good. But the date night is good because it can bring our hearts together. Because it can unite us in a greater intimacy, in a greater connection that will give us a strong foundation for our marriage. And in the same way, the blindness, the the confusion of human religious tradition is that if I just do X, Y, and Z, if I just check the box, I'm right with God. And God says, don't you see, it's always been about your heart. It's always about whether you're approaching me in worship and whether we've got a good relationship not about whether you're just managing to say the right things and do the right things. You see, what held them was their own blindness, was their own deception. But here's the most tragic thing. Ultimately, what held them was their own condemnation. Because what did their tradition entrap them in? A rejection of Jesus Christ the Savior of the world, the Savior of all mankind was right in front of them, right in front of their eyes, doing miracles that should have opened their eyes to who, they, who he was. And what, could, what was the only thing they could focus on? We don't need him. Don't you see we're washing our hands every time before we eat? We got all the sacrifices. We got all the traditions. Our fathers have been doing it like this for generations. We don't have any need to have our sins forgiven. We don't have any problems in our relationship with God. And they were entirely blind. And friends, I just want to give you as sobering a warning as I can. Everything that makes a part of your religious ritual and tradition, the way we do things here, even at Straight Gate Church, and we've done them for years or decades or more, can blind you that you need Jesus to be the only Savior, to be the only one who can forgive you of your sin. 
the only one who can give you a hope of eternal life that is based on a right relationship with God. And do not let the religious things that you do convince you that you are and I are not in desperate need every single hour of the person of Jesus Christ as the one who we cling to by faith and trust in him eternally. Friends, there's a trap, and God willing, we'll look more into it next Sunday morning. There's a trap that we fall into when we think that if we just do it a certain way, a certain path, a certain following, we're assured of being in right relationship with God. No, friends. Jesus is the one who came to reveal our need of him, our need to be forgiven, our need to be changed into the likeness of God. And may each one of us by faith today accept him and hold him for who he is.